Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Ryan Stackhouse. Today, we're joined by Robert Gerbarth. Professor Gerbarth, as some of you will already be aware, has made a name for himself in the study of interwar revolutions and radicals. As an author of a previous biography about the life of Reinhard Heydrich and a second book on the post-war chaos that swept the continent with the vanquished, the events of 1917 to 1923 have become something of a specialty for him. His latest book, November 1918, The German Revolution, returns to these years with a focus on the oft-forgotten revolution that accompanied the tumultuous birth of the Weimar Republic. November 1918, available from Oxford University Press as of August this year, entreats us to take the revolution on its own terms rather than dismissing it as a way station on the road to 1933. Gerwitz synthesizes mountains of research in November 1918 with a beautifully crafted narrative that traces events through the eyes of contemporaries. So, if you only have time to read one book on the subject, make it this one. But enough from me. We have the man himself with us here today. So without further ado, Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ryan. And uh, also, of course, for the kind introduction. Well, it's our pleasure to have you. Before we get to the book, how did you come to the study of history? Well, that's a big question. Um, I think it was in some ways a result of my upbringing in Berlin. I grew up in Berlin in the 1980s and 1990s. And with all that history surrounding you there, it was very difficult not to get interested uh, in the subject matter. Uh, So I was there when the wall fell and uh, saw, experienced the uh, end of the Cold War and uh, the following decades, which was uh, quite exciting to be there. And it was one of those events where you really uh, felt that you were living through a historically important time period. But uh, I had already been uh, quite interested in history as uh, as a child, it was my favorite subject at school. So I think these events simply reinforced an interest that was already there. I was interested to read in the preface that this was such a long-standing project for you over the course of your other publications. How did you come to write November 1918 specifically, and how did it evolve over time in light of your other work in the field? Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, my very first history seminar at university was on the Weimar Republic. Um, And uh, the subject has never really lost its fascination for me. So I've been thinking about uh, Weimar, uh, about German history within its broader European contexts for many, many years. But uh, as is the case uh, very often, and I'm sure many other authors will be able to Uh, sympathize with that. Um, Over the course of of working on this project, I've been sidetracked with other projects, but also, of course, with uh, teaching and life more generally. So I ended up writing other books. Um, The November 1918 book was actually uh, contracted well over uh, 10 years ago. And uh, I never really lost sight of it, but it just happened uh, to be the case that I ended up uh, publishing The Vanquished uh, beforehand. Um, and in some ways, I actually benefited from that delay because The Vanquished uh, paints a, a much broader canvas in terms of geographical scope, but it also 
allowed me to think a bit uh, about what makes German history special or unique and what is actually a reflection of wider trends in European history at the time. So that's uh, how the delay happened. And, uh, but I'm very glad that uh, I ended up uh, finishing the book uh, now. With that in mind, what is it that you want readers to take away from this? Well, as you uh, already indicated in the introduction, I think it's very important that we uh, think of Weimar history on its own terms. Now, obviously, this book is only uh, focused on uh, the origins of the Weimar Republic, on on the revolution itself. Um, But it seems curious that we teach our students in uh, history tutorials, basically in their first year, that we should not read history backwards. But when it comes to the Weimar Republic, we tend to make an exception. It is very often seen as a prehistory of the Nazi period, because, of course, we, who were fortunate enough to be born after the Second World War, we all know uh, how the story ends in 1933. And I think that has led to people looking for the origins of the Nazi dictatorship in Uh, previous uh, periods of German history, be it in Imperial Germany or be it in the Weimar Republic. I'm trying to argue here, and others have made that point as well, that at least up until 1929, until the uh, beginning of the Great Depression, the the future of the Weimar Republic is wide open with uh, failure as likely as consolidation. Uh, Certainly, if you look at the general elections in 1928, uh, the Nazis uh, have a an election result of less than 3%, um, whilst the Social Democrats return to government. So at that point, it really looks as if the consolidation process uh, of the first German democracy has, has worked out. They have come through uh, more crises than any other uh, democracy in modern times. Uh, putsch attempts from the left and the right, uh, political violence on the streets, hyperinflation, Um, the kind of issues that uh, most democracies are not familiar with. And it is quite remarkable, I find, that the the Obama Republic survives all that. With these larger questions in mind, you begin looking at 1917 as a sort of sea change moment in the war that begins framing expectations on both the left and the right. What happens that is so important in 1917 and what effect are these events having? Well, this is exactly where world history comes into German history. And I think it's very difficult to explain the so-called revolution of expectations that happens uh, in in Germany and elsewhere in 1917 without uh, two momentous events, the uh, Russian Revolution, of course, on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, the entry of the United States into the war. Now, these... um, both events really kind of changed the course of the war, but also the expectations for uh, the world after the war uh, is finished. Um, certainly those on the political left uh, are hopeful once the Bolshevik revolution has been successful, uh, that a revolution in Germany is also only a question of time. Uh, they're not necessarily Bolsheviks. Many people on the far left see like Rosa Luxemburg, for example, actually view the Bolshevik revolution with skepticism. Um, But of course, they are in favor of a revolution in Germany. On the other hand, you have lots of middle class people, but also the social democrats themselves who are much more skeptical about whether or not it is possible uh, to have a 
proletarian revolution in, in a highly industrialized uh, country. It is worth bearing in mind that 1918 is the only uh, successful uh, revolution in a highly industrialized uh, society uh, prior to the uh, peaceful revolutions that brought about the end of the Cold War. So th this is quite a complex society, and many social democrats uh, feel that the workers uh, have more to lose than uh, just their chains, and they therefore argue uh, in favor of reform rather than revolution in Germany. Um, on the other hand, the entry of the United uh, States into the war, uh, of course, also uh, changes its course in the sense that the German military leadership realizes that in order to win the war, it has to be won very quickly. This changes the strategy. It uh, leads to the spring offensive, which, of course, then uh, proves to be the undoing of the uh, of the German army. Uh, the idea is to defeat the uh, French and uh, the British uh, before American troops arrive in Europe in large numbers. And it is possible because uh, the Russian Revolution, but also the military successes uh, of uh, the Germans on the Eastern Front, uh, essentially knocked Russia out of the war. Um, so as a result of that, um, Ludendorff decides on a gamble, and uh, as we all know, he loses that gamble. But there are expectations in Germany, quite widespread uh, expectations at the beginning of 1918 that they're going to win this war, which of course then contrasts in a very stark way uh, with the realities. And uh, it also kind of gives uh, energy to the step of the uh, step in the back uh, myth in the sense that uh, in November 1918, there's not a single um, allied soldier on uh, German soil. Uh, so even though it is clear, even to the military uh, commanders, that uh, Germany had been defeated militarily, um, it doesn't really make sense to many uh, Germans in, in late 1918. And so therefore, they they willingly buy into this narrative that it was not uh, the enemy, the enemy armies, but actually the enemy within uh, communists uh, in particular, but also Jews who had conspired uh, to bring about the downfall of the the mighty German Empire. So, lots of different expectations uh, in Germany at the time as a result of these historical uh, events uh, that were outside of Germany, but that had an immediate effect on the ways in which uh, people viewed the future. Well, Russian capitulation and the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk especially pushes Ludendorff into this gamble in a race against time against American intervention. Where does the crisis of legitimacy that he is facing and the government, the imperial government more broadly is facing stem from? And how are events in Russia feeding these impossibly high expectations? Well, in many ways, um, Ludendorff and Hindenburg at this point had established a, a military dictatorship um, in, in Germany. Uh, they were really making the decisions uh, and the uh, successes in Russia, uh, The, as you say, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, uh, seemed to uh, prove to many people that this strategy was working. And then as soon as the military success stopped in uh, the spring and early summer of 1918, uh, that's the moment when this regime, which whose legitimacy really depends on military success, just like any charismatic leader, um, uh, that's the turning point when uh, really 
they kind of lose the confidence uh, of the troops. Um, and with the uh, reversal of military fortunes on the Western Front, that intensifies to the point where most uh, field commanders um, in the summer of 1918 uh, are clearly unwilling to back the regime of uh, the Kaiser any further. There is, of course, in November, the famous meeting of field commanders where the vast majority uh, essentially uh, say to the military leaders that um, if the Kaiser decides to march on uh, Berlin, he could not really count on uh, on the army, which um, is a huge disappointment uh, for him. Military collapse in the fall of 1918 here brings this underlying crisis of legitimacy that's been deferred by the expectations of peace with Russia to a head. You identify flagging discipline, a crumbling authoritarian government, and mounting pressure from the Entente as the catalyst for the revolution proper. What is the course of events that's bringing us into the fall? Well, the revolution starts, and not this is not dissimilar to the um, February Revolution in Russia. It really starts as protests, as a form of protest against the continuation of war. It's an anti-war revolution. Uh, and of course, the catalyst for it is the decision of the naval leadership to send out the imperial fleet in a last-ditch battle uh, against the British. Um, many of the sailors obviously realized that this is a suicide mission, and the imperial army had been um, idle for most of the of the war. Uh, there is a mutiny, and this mutiny gradually spreads uh, through uh, the coastal cities and then uh, inland, um, which makes the, the German Revolution quite unique because generally revolutions uh, start in the capital uh, and then spread out through the country. Here, it really uh, is in coastal towns like Kiel uh, that the, the revolution begins. And uh, in a way, the demands of the revolutionaries uh, become more radical as the Kaiser refuses to give way immediately. Many of your listeners will, of course, know that uh, the um, Kaiser is still refusing to abdicate uh, on the early morning hours uh, of the 9th of November. Uh, at this point, the revolution has basically overrun every German state except for the capital. Uh, and the, um, the, the chancellor then finally takes the decision uh, to announce the abdication without Wilhelm's approval. You have this wonderful line tucked away in your chapter on the Kiel Mutiny, where you refer to the mutineers as, quote, 40,000 heavily armed men with naval artillery, definitely casts it in sharp relief. There's also this metaphor of, of as, as you talk about the, the oil slick of revolution from one of the contemporaries that leaves Berlin as this, this island in a sea of revolution, as it were, when it finally does come to Berlin, how does this happen? Well, the imperial government, and in particular the military commanders in Berlin, were strangely confident that they could actually stop the revolution in Berlin. Lots of troops had been amassed uh, in the city. There are, of course, garrisons around uh, Berlin as well and Potsdam. And they felt confident that with violence, if necessary, uh, they could stop the revolution uh, from uh, succeeding in the capital. And uh, many people, many supporters 
uh, of the Kaiser. There weren't many left at this point. But uh, those hardliners uh, in the military headquarters in, uh, in Spa in Belgium uh, felt quite confident that the revolution could be crushed uh, with uh, military power. So they were quite surprised, though, when they realized that some of the units which were deemed to be uh, the most loyal in the city uh, essentially capitulated uh, and uh, joined the revolutionaries um, without firing a shot. So one of the characteristics of the early phase of the revolution really is uh, that it was remarkably peaceful. Um, not many people die uh, during that revolution, uh, which in some ways you could say has actually contributed to the assumption that this is a revolution in a minor key, it sort of lacks the drama and the violence and the blood spilling of the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. Um, and uh, so clearly there is a lot less drama, but I don't think that a, a peaceful revolution is not necessarily an unsuccessful revolution. This uh, maximalist versus minimalist interpretation of a revolution, do you want to expand on that a little? Sure. Yes, I'm very happy uh, to. I think um, that our focus on the French and Russian revolutions, uh, in particular the Great uh, Revolution of the East and the Great Revolution of the West, at least within Europe, has led us to a situation in which uh, lesser uh, revolutions are very often overlooked, uh, despite the fact that uh, one could argue that both the uh, Russian Revolution and the French Revolution end in uh, bloodshed, civil war, and eventually dictatorships uh, without that taking anything away uh, from their historical greatness. I don't really believe in um, the maximalist assumption that violence is a key aspect of a successful revolution. I think success needs to be measured against uh, what the revolutionaries themselves wanted. And the majority of the revolutionaries uh, in Germany in November 1918, want two things. They want to end the war, uh, which they do very quickly. And uh, secondly, they want democratization. Now, there is, of course, um, disagreement on what the end result of that revolution uh, should be. But it is worth uh, bearing in mind that at least in November 1918, the vast majority uh, of Germans want a democracy. And I think the uh, election results of the uh, National Assembly, January 1918, uh, show that very clearly it's only a very small minority of people who uh, support the, even within the working class uh, movement, uh, which of course is split uh, into the majority social democrats and the independent social democrats. But the majority social democrats, Ebert and his colleagues, have far more support than the independents, which are further to the left. Um, and, and that can very clearly be shown, not just in that one particular um, uh, election, but also for most, that's true for most elections uh, throughout the 1920s, when we take the KPD uh, results into consideration. If we circle back now to the revolution arriving in Berlin, what are the underlying tensions between the different factions of the Socialist Party on the one hand and the other visions that are competing for Germany's future? before we arrive at the Spartacus uprising? Yeah, the major uh, tension, the major division is between uh, the independent uh, social democrats and the majority social democrats, who of course had split uh, already during the war, 
because of disagreement over whether or not uh, a working class party should support the war credits or whether they should favor uh, international working class uh, solidarity. That, that is the, one of the key aspects uh, that leads to the schism within the German working class uh, movements. The other one is, of course, the question um, whether a revolution is necessary or not. Already since the beginning of the uh, of the 20th century, uh, some uh, social democratic theorists had argued that a revolution is no longer necessary. It remains in the uh, political program of the SPD, but the reference to uh, Revolution is predominantly um, rhetorical. Um, there are other questions. Should a revolution lead to something that is uh, similar to the pro- proletarian dictatorship uh, established in, uh, in, in Russia? Or are we looking at a society which can be improved through reform? Uh, it is, I think, also worth bearing in mind here as the background to this discussion that the situation of workers in Russia is fundamentally different in 1917 from the situation of workers in in Germany at the time. The Tsarist regime is an oppressive regime. It had crushed the uh, revolution in uh, 10 years earlier with extreme violence. Uh, Workers were living in uh, often horrific uh, conditions. And uh, the situation for workers in in Germany is, is fundamentally different. So the question is, do you need a, uh, a radical revolution, or is it sufficient to further improve on what had already been achieved? As these events and tensions are playing out in Berlin, the armistice is being negotiated with the Western powers by Erzberger. Who is involved in these negotiations? How are they playing out? And of course, what is the reception back home in Germany? Yeah, many Germans, of course, have high hopes for um, the peace agreement, uh, even for the armistice, particularly for the armistice, because they believe that this will be an armistice along the lines um, of uh, the uh, Wilsonian uh, 14 points that uh, you know Germany uh, will obviously have to make some concessions, but that at the end of the day, this will be a just peace, a peace uh, without uh, winners and losers. And uh, so there is a naivety I would say, among the general population. And here, once again, it is worth bearing in mind that for many um, uh, Germans, particularly the more uh, nationalistic-minded uh, ones, uh, it looked as if Germany was about to win the war uh, as late as spring 1918, and suddenly they're facing um, demands that go well beyond what uh, Wilson had put into uh, the 14 points. Now, from the start, it is clear that the uh, negotiations uh, in uh, at the end of the First World War aren't really negotiations. Uh, essentially, uh, Erzberger is handed a catalogue of demands and uh, is given a bit of time to uh, accept these demands. Um, so that obviously doesn't help. You can understand where the Allies are coming from. Uh, also, regarding their decision to uh, continue uh, the, the economic blockade of Germany, which of course leads to mass uh, starvation, uh, they want to enforce compliance, uh, whereas uh, the Germans see it as vindictiveness against the civilian uh, population. So there is some suspicion, of course, in the Allied camp uh, regarding how uh, democratic the new government is. And uh, it is a bit unfair because people like Erzberger and uh, other 
um, people who are now in government uh, had been behind the peace resolution uh, the previous year, which essentially uh, demanded a peace uh, without territorial uh, concessions. And um, these people are now in power, but nonetheless, they are viewed as um, representatives of the bygone uh, regime. So there's a conflation of these these different groups. And uh, as soon as the the terms of the armistice uh, break in uh, in Germany, there's growing uh, disillusionment. Um, but nonetheless, certainly until uh, 1919, the late spring, early summer 1919 when the uh, peace terms become fully known, we're entering into what is generally uh, referred to in the uh, secondary literature as the, uh, the dream period uh, of, the, um, of the armistice, uh, essentially a period where people had illusions about the kind of peace that uh, a peace treaty that Germany was going to sign. During this dream period, Ebert's government is faced with the unenviable tasks of negotiating this unfavorable peace, reintegrating millions of disgruntled soldiers into an economy that is geared for war, securing food for a starving population that has produced the crisis in the first place, and finding some kind of public narrative that renders this near inconceivable sacrifice palatable. The consequences for all this are presumptively civil war. How is the transitional government handling these challenges and what considerations are entering play? Yeah, the, the challenges for this inexperienced uh, government under Ebert uh, are enormous. I mean, I, just to pick up one of the points that you just mentioned, there are still several million German uh, soldiers scattered all over Europe. These are heavily armed men. The government has no idea how they will respond to uh, the news of a, of a revolutionary government. Uh, all of this is uh, pretty challenging. You, you know, you have to find the logistics to bring these people back, uh, often march them back, um, make sure that uh, you can collect as many arms as possible because you don't necessarily want millions of men with uh, war experience and and uh, firearms uh, under their beds. Um, and you have to feed them uh, as well in uh, a time when the economic blockade is still ongoing. So these are very practical challenges that the government is initially facing. And on top of that, of course, is the uh, the ideological divide between the independents and the uh, and the majority uh, social democrats, which is temporarily bridged in this moment of uh, revolution. But there's always a risk that uh, the situation will, will escalate and that uh, they will not find a long-term common denominator. Uh, upon which uh, common government policy uh, will be possible. So the initial months are, are characterized by uh, pragmatism um, and also by, of course, Ebert's desire to prevent a social revolution. I mean, he himself, under the impression of the Russian Revolution, uh, says repeatedly that he hates revolution like sin. Uh, what he means is he hates a Bolshevik-style revolution in which he feels... Uh, a relatively small uh, subsection of the population uh, that never had a, 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 a mandate from the overall uh, majority of the electorate uh, essentially uh, uses the chaotic situation, pushes against a uh, legitimate government and takes over power. And he sort of saw um, 
Liebknecht and Luxembourg as uh, representatives of a Bolshevik-style uh, government. Um, while there are more nuances to all of this, um, Liebknecht in particular, of course, does very little to dispel that myth. I mean, he himself, his rhetoric is is, is quite aggressive. He repeatedly uh, praises uh, the Soviet government and suggests that uh, Germany must form an alliance uh, with them. Uh, one of his uh, first um, demonstrations uh, after his release from prison ends outside the uh, Soviet uh, embassy in, in Berlin. So there are lots of references that make people like Ebert nervous, shall we say. These unresolved tensions between the majority and independent socialist parties stemming in large part from the move away from a council republic toward a national assembly, finally boil over in winter 1918-19. This leads to a conflict between the two socialist parties on the one hand and the Spartacists and the Freikorps on the other. Who are the key players here and what is at stake in each of their political visions? Yeah, in some ways, the clash that eventually uh, happens in uh, 19, January 1919, and then, of course, drags on and uh, happens again and again in different parts of, of Germany, uh, is a result of irreconcilable ideological positions. On the one hand, you have uh, people like Luxembourg and, and Liebknecht uh, who feel that the revolution that they uh, aspire to has been betrayed, has been betrayed by uh, the Social Democrats, in particular Ebert and uh, Noske, and on the other hand, you have Ibad Anoska thinking that uh, there are subversive groups who uh, want to do what the Bolsheviks have done in, in Russia in, uh, in 1917. Uh, and in addition to that, you have uh, the, uh, the Freikorps paramilitary organizations mainly composed of uh, decommissioned uh, officers and NCOs plus um, army cadets and nationalist students who actually buy into this narrative that the revolution has betrayed the sacrifices of the German nation and the German uh, military for the previous four years. So they are waiting for a situation uh, where, uh, for a big reckoning, essentially. And uh, essentially in the situation, um, Noske decides that in order to defeat what he perceives to be the greater enemy, namely the far left, uh, he is willing to uh, essentially make a deal with um, military units that are, of course, at no point uh, behind the new democratic order. So it's a, it, there is a kind of Faustian pact. Now, up until that point, um, the Ebert government had always tried to seek compromises between the unions and the employers, uh, also between the old army uh, and uh, the new government in order to make sure that there wouldn't be a civil war in Germany. And I think um, it would be fair to Ebert to, to suggest that, that he was convinced that he was doing the right thing. Uh, he is not supportive of the, the Freikorps because he feels that the Freikorps are, are a good thing. Um, but he, he feels more threatened by the far left And uh, at this point. This is not in any way, shape or form to justify the uh, extremely brutal uh, suppression uh, of the uprising in January uh, 
1919 or subsequently the crushing of the uh, Munich uh, Soviet Republic uh, or other smaller council republics that spring up in various parts of, of, of Germany. But I think it is important to take more seriously than we have in the past the perspectives of contemporaries. And I think if you do that, it perhaps becomes clearer why about panics in this situation. How so? Just expand on that a little. Well, I mean, the main reason, once again, why uh, Ebert is viewing the Spartacists sort of on the far left of the independence um, on the communist left uh, with such suspicion is because um, it, because of events in, in Russia uh, the previous year. So that's what he has in mind. He has in mind that you don't actually need a large number of uh, supporters. What you need is a group of determined revolutionaries, professional revolutionaries who are willing uh, to overthrow a democratically um, sanctioned government. So he thinks that the Spartacists are are doing precisely that. Um, Now, that is probably unfair to um, Rosa Luxemburg in particular, um, because they don't necessarily want a uh, Soviet-style regime. But in the heat of the moment, I'm not quite sure that there is um, space for these subtleties uh, from the point of view of Ebert and Noske in particular. Um, So different people come to this moment with very different expectations, which is, of course, characteristic for the entire Weimar period. Like uh, There are irreconcilable ideological uh, divides that cannot be bridged. But as soon as um, these massacres have taken place, the original accusation of treason against the uh, Social Democrats, that the Social Democrats had betrayed the uh, revolutionary cause, whilst at the same time being accused by nationalists of uh, betrayal of the German nation for um, supporting the revolution in the first place, Uh, This really creates a a toxic climate uh, because now the Social Democrats are confronted with um, accusations of treason from both sides. And uh, so the divide between the different uh, factions within the working class movements becomes deeper and deeper. And uh, to the point where in uh, 1929, of course, also under the influence of uh, Moscow, uh, the KPD essentially uh, decides that it would be impossible going forward to work together with the Social Democrats, which uh, has uh, dramatic consequences because uh, if we look at, say, the Kaputsch of 1920, when uh, the different uh, parties, uh, working class parties in Germany decided uh, to back a, a general strike against the Putschists, uh, you can see what working class uh, grassroots, uh, how strong uh, working class grassroots support in Germany is because the strike essentially uh, brings all of Germany to uh, a grinding halt and the putsch collapses within days. Uh, but no such response is is possible uh, in January 1933 when, of course, the economic situation is very difficult as well and lots of people are unemployed and are desperately looking for jobs. So uh, having a general strike in that uh, climate uh, would have been a challenge even for Uh, a united front of SPD and KPD. But nonetheless, I think it is uh, worth remembering where these tensions, uh, growing tensions, are coming from. 
circling back again to the November 1918 to summer 1919 dreamland period, even the Spartacus uprising fails to upset this enthusiasm for democratization in the broader population. What is the legislative vision that is emerging during this period? And how is it being legitimized in the face of this resistance from extremes on both sides? Well, essentially, uh, in that spirit of um, broader collaboration between the largest uh, working class uh, party uh, in in Germany, the SPD, the MSPD, uh, and the um, some of the more liberal middle class parties and the uh, Catholic Center Party, the idea is to bring um, people from all of these parties together to draft a. Uh, liberal constitution. What is interesting here is that the liberals, although they are uh, much smaller in terms of uh, seats, um, actually have a huge influence on the constitution, uh, which is why uh, you basically get the results that you get. It's a, it's it's not a social demo- democratic uh, constitution, but much more of a liberal vision of uh, how a constitution uh, should be written. Um, of course very important uh, aspects of uh, general legislation, but also uh, the constitution is uh, full equality between uh, men and women. Um, Of course, the women's right to vote was already uh, introduced uh, in uh, the lead up to the uh, national assembly elections in January 1919, making Germany the first highly industrialized country to have to give uh, women the vote, which uh, is actually very important um, because um, up until that point, more than half of the population had been excluded from uh, the process of uh, political decision making. And uh, it, it is also uh, important because as a result of the demographic changes introduced by the war, the fact that uh, 2 million German young men had died, uh, that means that there is a female uh, surplus uh, in the population. And I think that has generally been um well, not overlooked, but it hasn't been highlighted uh, enough, I would say, in general histories of this period, because ultimately, when you read general histories of the Weimar Republic, you get the impression that this is a very male republic, when really it's women who decide the uh, elections, um, which I think is quite remarkable. Now, they they remain underrepresented in parliament, uh, but that doesn't mean that women are not politically engaged. In fact, in most elections, you have uh, far more women uh, going to the polls than uh, than men, so I think that's that is something that has needs to be more strongly emphasised. Um, in terms of, there has been always been a lot of kind of criticism of some articles in the Weimar Constitution, uh, notably, of course, Article uh, Forty Eight, um, which gives the the president as a kind of uh, Kaiser, um, the right to rule by decree in uh, times of emergency. Um, and of course, this comes up once again uh, because we look at the history of the Weimar Republic through the prism of 1933, uh, when uh, Hindenburg uses his exceptional powers to appoint um, uh, Adolf Hitler as chancellor of a coalition uh, government. Um, but what is, I think, less well known is that uh, Ebert, as president uh, of the Republic, actually uses Article 48 quite extensively. Um, but 
in the aim, with the aim and ambition to safeguard the revolution during the turbulent uh, first couple of years. Um, so it is not necessarily a tool that is automatically was automatically designed to undermine um, democracy, but rather something uh, that was aimed as a sort of safeguard. Um, now, moving forward to 1945, obviously uh, people felt that this was one of the uh, reasons why the Weimar Republic collapsed, but I don't think that's the case. I mean, um, if you look at the election results, and I think that this is generally um, a point worth making, in democracies, of course, there is the possibility, the inherent possibility that people decide that they no longer want a democracy and uh, therefore support uh, political parties which work towards the abolition of democracy. And, I mean, we're seeing that, I don't want to draw um, extreme parallels to the present, but what we're seeing at the moment in various parts of the world is that uh, political parties that are not necessarily uh, supportive of democracy in its purest form, but rather uh, prefer kind of managed democracy or authoritarian form of government, uh, are gaining ground again. Uh, and it is perhaps worth bearing in mind that, um, you know, democracies can fail, they can self-abolish, um, and uh, often with terrible consequences. The framing of this new constitution by the National Assembly, as you quite rightly point out, does not end the latent threat of revolution and opposition from those who are not in favor of a democracy. The dreamland is quite rudely dispelled by an escalating spiral of violence that begins in late spring. What happens during the second phase of the revolution? Well, the second phase of the revolution um, is essentially marks a radicalization, a departure from the peaceful uh, first phase of the revolution. It probably already starts in, in December um, in 1918, but certainly escalates in the spring of, uh, of 1919. And what happens here is that you have a variety of uh, localized uprisings by um, – Far-left groups that are unhappy with the results of the revolution, they say, okay, we have a democracy, but we don't have uh, a direct, no elements of direct uh, democracy since the social democrats in cahoots with the liberals and the center party decided against uh, introducing elements of the, the council republic and instead preferred uh, an indirect democracy. Uh, they feel that the revolution has been betrayed and that certain opportunities uh, were not, uh, you know, explored in greater detail. And this kind of escalates uh, into violence. In tandem with that, uh, roughly at the same time, of course, on the 18th of January, the Paris Peace Conference convenes. So um, the process of undermining democracy is not just an internal problem, I'd say it's also an external problem. Now, I'm not saying that uh, the Versailles Treaty is responsible for the undoing of Weimar democracy, uh, but it didn't help either. Now, I can't really see um, any other outcome because certainly when you compare the uh, Versailles Treaty with some of the other peace treaties, be they um, uh, the certainly the Treaty of uh, Brest-Litovsk, but also uh, Trianon, uh, I, I would almost argue that Versailles was one of the, the milder uh, peace treaties and anything uh, less harsh would have been uh, impossible for these statesmen, for uh, uh, Wilson and many others, to sell to their home uh, populations, particularly in France and Britain, 
where the numbers of casualties had been very high. Um, so I think there are internal developments and also external uh, developments that really um, put the democratic center in Germany under extreme pressure. Um, that said, uh, they still maintain a majority um, for a while, not as, as clear a uh, majority as they had uh, in January 1919. But one of the, the, the central points I'm trying to make is that Weimar was not just is not just a lesson in that democracies can fail, but also a reminder that democracies can be very resilient in the face of extraordinary challenges. So uh, again, you have these uh, you know challenges ranging from a huge debt burden uh, already before the reparations question uh, is put on the table. Uh, you have um, radicalism on the far left and far right, uh, people who are, cannot be reconciled with democracy. Uh, you then have, on top of that, uh, foreign occupation uh, in 1923. Uh, you have putsch attempts, uh, be it the Kaputsch in 1920 or the Hitler putsch in 1923. And on top of that, hyperinflation. And despite it all, um, the Weimar Republic actually continues uh, to exist until 1933. Well, we finally do arrive at the poison chalice, the Treaty of Versailles. What are the perspectives coming to the table? You've alluded to some of them already, but more importantly, what are the effects of redrawing these boundaries across Europe? Yeah, essentially what happens in 19, uh, November 1918, and then what is sanctioned by the Paris Peace Conference, often uh, retrospectively, is probably the most dramatic reshuffling of the European map. Um, now, I think it is important to uh, remind people that very often th these realities were already created uh, in November 1918 when the big land empires in Europe collapsed and a very large number of new independent states emerged in uh, the shatter zones of empire. And uh, essentially, these uh, new borders were created uh, with violence, paramilitary groups who suddenly uh, defined themselves as the new national armies. So the Western allies don't really have any troops in uh, Eastern and Central Europe, which leads to the uh, strange situation that very often they have to ask the, the German troops to stay uh, where they are in order to kind of control the situation. Um, obviously, uh, Germany or many Germans uh, expected fully that the, um, that the country would lose its colonies uh, and also uh, fully expected that there would be uh, changes to the uh, German western border. The loss of Alsace-Lorraine was fully uh, uh, anticipated. And then in addition to that, uh, there was the much more um, controversial issue of the uh, German eastern border. Um, and that was never accepted, the new uh, drawing of the German eastern border, the bleeding uh, frontier, as it is often called, um, and the emergence of a an independent uh, Poland. Uh, that remained a, um, a very thorny issue for a very long time, in addition, of course, to the creation of very sizable uh, ethnically German 
uh, minorities in uh, East Central Europe, uh, which becomes a sort of major uh, topic, of course, for uh, Nazi propaganda in, in the 1930s. The issues that you're raising in this book, uh, concepts of authoritarian resilience and democratic failure are, of course, becoming much more hotly debated in other literatures. You have this epilogue that draws attention to how the Republic, as you say, weathered the storm from 1920 to 1923, arguing that a lack of assertiveness about its successes had more to do with upset expectations than any problems or failures to improve circumstances. You conclude on this note that as of late 1923, consolidation would have seemed more likely than failure. Talk us through. How so? Well, after the the major state crisis of 1923, which saw uh, Belgian uh, Franco uh, occupation, um, which saw the uh, collapse of the currency, hyperinflation, uh, and many other sort of major crises that uh, we already talked about, um, it seemed as if the Republic had weathered the storms. And as um, as I said at the onset, the one of the premises of the book is to take more seriously the um, the views of the contemporaries. So for the contemporaries, who obviously could not know uh, how the story would end, uh, it would have looked at the end of 1923 as if the future was finally going to be uh, brighter. And I would extend that argument and, and basically say the same thing until uh, the summer of 1929, uh, when in 1928, for example, the uh, Social Democratic uh, Chancellor who had just been re-elected, Hermann Müller, uh, published an account of the November Revolution, basically celebrating the event and said, look uh, how far we have come. Ten years later, uh, the Republic has defeated all of its enemies. Uh, we have made, uh, uh, we have embarked on a policy of reconciliation, at least with our French neighbours. Uh, we have been welcomed back into the uh, family of states and the League of Nations, etc., etc., there is a lot to celebrate here. Uh, and uh, one year later, then, the Great Depression kicks in. So while, of course, the Great Depression uh, brings back to the fore some of the issues that, uh, you know, the Great War had uh, raised but not solved, lingering issues, it really is kind of that um, unparalleled economic collapse, which really uh, creates the space for a political party like the Nazis but also, of course, the communists who also uh, see a massive increase in, in votes for ap- apocalyptic politicians uh, and demagogues to make promises um, without having to deliver on them, at least in the short term. Well, on that note, we draw your current work to a close. But uh, moving ahead, what can we look forward to from you next? Well, I mean, I guess that the the next works will be a long time uh, in in the making because I'm only just really starting uh, on it. I would be quite interested in um, writing a more general history of the Weimar Republic, um, which sort of takes forward some of these arguments. Um, But I'm also very interested, and this is a much more long-term project, in writing a new history of civil wars uh, in Europe, basically from the Balkan Wars, with its expulsion, mass expulsion of uh, Muslim minorities from former Ottoman territories, uh, all the way to the end of the the Greek Civil War. Because I think that although we have a lot of uh, books on individual 
civil wars, uh, obviously the American Civil War, but also uh, the Russian uh, Civil War and many others, uh, there's relatively little, uh, very few attempts to kind of uh, compare them and to ask the question why civil wars became so predominant uh, in a period which we quite rightly, and I think for various reasons, uh, very often associate with the two world wars, whose um, significance obviously has overshadowed the large variety of civil wars that were going on simultaneously. Fortunately, I have a a year's research leave uh, coming up now, uh, since I have recently finished my uh, term as head of department uh, here in UCD. So uh, I'm looking forward to getting back into the archives and uh, getting started. Well, we wait with bated breath, however long it may be. Excellent. Thank you very much, Ryan. That's, uh, that was great to be on your show. Well, it's been our pleasure. Well, that does it for us here at New Books in German Studies. Once again, we've been talking with Robert Gerwarth about November 1918, the German Revolution. November 1918 is available from Oxford University Press as of August 2020, and will be of interest to anyone looking for a narrative about the key element behind the revolution that laid the foundation of the Weimar Republic. Gerberth does an excellent job. Uh, As I alluded to during the interview, he plucks out these diary entries and public pronouncements that really put you in the minds of contemporaries across the different political and social divides. So whether you're a general reader looking for the view from 30,000 feet, as it were, or you're a teacher searching for a memorable way to introduce the core conflicts that came to define Weimar, November 1918 may be just the book you're looking for. With that, I'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.